You're listening to Sermon Audio from Jerusalem Church, an independent Reformed church in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Our expository preaching ministry is devoted to proclaiming the law and the gospel for the glory of God and the salvation, growth, and comfort of Christ's church. If you'd like to know more about our church, visit us online at JerusalemChurch.net. Here's a message that we hope strengthens your faith and comforts your soul. For many years, Winston Churchill received medical care from an extraordinary doctor, a notable neurologist who had contributed much to nervous system and brain research. What what was the neurologist's name? Walter Russell Brain. Baron Brain of Ensham. So I guess as a distinguished neurologist, Lord Brain lived up to his name. In 2006, a talented 29-year-old chef opened a restaurant in Scotland, and just six months after opening, he became Scotland's youngest winner of the coveted Michelin star for outstanding cooking. His name is Thomas William Kitchen, K-I-T-C-H-I-N, a fitting name for a chef. And you might have have seen a meme of this guy, but he's a lieutenant for the Sun Prairie Volunteer Fire Department in Wisconsin. He's uh, served the the fire department for over 30 years. His name is, and this is not a joke, Les McBurney. (laughs) Les McBurney, the firefighter. What a name. And then there's a, a dentist from Austin, Texas, whose name is Dr. Chip Silvertooth. And the contractor from Noblesville, Indiana, named Paul Schwinghammer. Now, I'm not sure what all this this name stuff means for me, a shirk. I don't think I'm always trying to avoid work and and responsibility. I I don't know if this is true, but I read that shirk is derived from a middle high German word meaning rogue or rascal. So... So maybe that's right. Maybe I'm just a rascal. Hopefully I don't live up to my name. Names mean something. Christina's uh, maiden name was Miller, a name derived from people who worked in grist mills. There are names like Archer, Barber, Carpenter, Shoemaker, Tailor, Weaver. They're all derived from the work people did. Names mean something and oftentimes reflect work. Jesus, there's something about that name. Jesus, it's a name like no other name. Jesus, it's a name that only one person throughout history lives up to. And your confidence and comfort, your peace and perseverance, your hope and happiness in life and death are found beautifully wrapped in the marvelous name, Jesus. And I want to tell you about the extraordinary person who bears this name. Take heart and rejoice. Your Savior Jesus lives up to his name. Let's begin to think about the divine origin of the name Jesus. Let's think about why God chose to give this name to his son. God the Father named his incarnate son Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. We finish up the first section of the Apostles' Creed on God the Father, and now we come to the second section, which says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. There's a lot of gospel in that short phrase and in the name Jesus. 
The name Jesus, or Jesus in the Greek, derives from the Hebrew name Yehoshua, or Joshua, meaning whose help and salvation is Jehovah, or Yahweh is salvation. Jesus means Savior. Think about Matthew 1. Joseph was resolved in his heart to divorce Mary because he supposed she was unfaithful. However, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Mary's pregnancy was unique. And the angel added, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. An angel told Mary essentially the same thing. So not only was the conception of the child divine, but the naming of the child was divine. The name wasn't Mary and Joseph's idea. They didn't select the name from a book of the most popular Hebrew boys and girls' names. It wasn't even the angel's idea. God named his incarnate son Jesus. Why Jesus? God chose the name Jesus because of who his son is and what he sent his son to do. The angel said, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The father sent his only son to save the elect from the guilt and penalty of their sin. The father gave his incarnate son the name Jesus because his son would undeniably and unstoppably and inevitably save all God's chosen people from their sin. None of them will be missed. None of them will perish. None of them will remain in their sin and misery. When a lifeguard jumps into the water to rescue a drowning man, if the man drowns, though we honor the heroism of the lifeguard, he cannot be rightly considered a savior. God's son doesn't bear the name in vain. He rescues every single one of those God sent him to save. The son lives up to his name by doing everything that his name implies. His name tells us who he is and what he does. He alone is the savior. He alone is salvation. His name, his name alerts us to the peril of sin and death. His name presents him as the only savior. His name implies your sin and need and his identity and work. Take heart and rejoice. Your Savior Jesus lives up to his God-given name. His name is your assurance of salvation. The name Jesus is like Fort Knox. It, there's incomprehensible wealth inside, and that wealth is God's love toward you and me. The God-given name Jesus assures you that God's Son died for weak and ungodly people. In Romans 5, Paul talks about being justified by faith, being at peace with God through Jesus, standing in God's grace, rejoicing in hope of God's glory, and rejoicing in our sufferings. He talks about the meaning of suffering, how suffering produces beautiful things like endurance, character, 
and hope. And in verse 5, Paul mentions God's love being poured into the hearts of believers through the Holy Spirit that has been graciously granted them. Verse 6 then explains how believers can actually rejoice in suffering. Believers can rejoice in suffering because God's love has been showcased in the death of Jesus. Verse 6 says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So what does it mean to be weak? It means to be morally incapable or morally failing. See, the word weak connects to the word ungodly in the second part of the verse. What does it mean to be ungodly? It means to be wicked, profane, sinful. John Calvin said, quote, for as we are all born the children of wrath, so we are kept under that curse until we become partakers of Christ. And he calls those weak who have nothing in themselves but what is sinful, for he calls the same immediately afterwards ungodly, end quote. Weakness corresponds with ungodliness. And at the right time, the time that God sovereignly decreed and ordained, the son gave his life on the cross for weak and ungodly people. Think in human terms for a moment. Someone might die for a decent person. It's not a given, but it might happen. George Washington and, and Frederick Douglass were decent honorable and courageous men. Maybe someone would daringly give their life for a man like Washington or Douglas. We'd understand that. Though if a man with a family, depending on him, did not give his life for someone like Washington or Douglas, we'd understand, right? So one will scarcely or with great difficulty die for a righteous person. And here in Romans 5, we find out that God's son died for weak and ungodly people. Would you give your life for a child predator? Abusive husband and father, serial killer, raging alcoholic, corrupt politician, terrorist, slave owner, school shooter? Only one has that kind of love. Intrinsic to the name Jesus is the covenantal faithfulness and love of God the Father expressed in God the Son dying in the place of weak and ungodly people. God is love and all eternity is not enough time to fully comprehend divine love expressed in God's Son dying. The, the name Jesus is assurance that God's love is for the worst of people. Take heart and rejoice, dear church. Your Savior Jesus lives up to his name. Now, what good is the gospel for you if you don't receive it for yourself? There's no salvation in believing the gospel is sufficient for everyone but you. That's not noble. That's not humble. That's simply unbelief. True faith receives and takes hold of salvation in life by receiving and taking hold of Jesus. The God-given name Jesus assures you that God's Son died for you, an unworthy sinner. 
Ignorant of God's love is the man who is ignorant of his own weakness and ungodliness. Grateful is the weak and ungodly man who receives salvation and life in the crucified and risen Son of God. Do you believe and confess that the words weak and ungodly describe you apart from Christ? If not, you you haven't yet begun to know, understand, and experience God's love in Jesus. Jesus died for horrible people. Jesus died for wicked people. Jesus died for the people on the naughty list. Santa Claus is coming to town is a covenant of works. It's law. It's be good or you don't get anything for Christmas. That's not good news. The name of Jesus is good news because Jesus died for naughty people who didn't deserve any gifts. And until you realize that you were on the naughty list, you will never understand the extravagant gift of God's love. God named his incarnate son Jesus because only his son can save you from your naughtiness and reconcile you to God. Look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Paul argues from the lesser to the greater. Maybe someone would die for a righteous or a good person. But how much more is God's love shown in God's son dying in the place of wicked and abysmal people? That's a transcendent love, folks, that we do not fully understand. Now, Paul was writing to the church in Rome. That's important to know who the audience is the church in Rome, and by extension, all the redeemed. But God shows his love for us, us being the redeemed church. God shows his love for his chosen covenant people in this way. While they were still sinners, enslaved to sin, Jesus died and rescued them. Now, if you're going to identify as a member of Christ's church, as one of the redeemed, as as one who belongs to Christ, you must acknowledge that God's love was expressed in Jesus Christ dying for you when you were a miserable and abysmal person enslaved to sin. When you were hating God, when you were hating others, Jesus died in your place. When you were unlovable, undesirable, unpleasing, and unworthy, Jesus died in your place. You will not understand the freedom and joy and comfort of the gospel until you realize that God loved you when you were an unworthy sinner. That God doesn't love or that God's love doesn't depend on anything in you or done by you, but depends entirely on his loving disposition toward you. Now, teenagers, let's say that there is this bully at school that hates you. He mocks you relentlessly, spreads rumors about you, flashes dirty, looks at you, 
even threatens you. He goes out of his way to make your life difficult, like knocking the books out of your hands right there on the ground or pushing you against the locker or yelling you at lunchtime in front of everybody and you're really embarrassed. Now, is your first inclination, teenagers, to invite this kid to your birthday party? Probably not. See, we all struggle to understand God's love. The Bible says God is love, and we believe that, and we confess that, but it's very difficult for understand the magnitude of the phrase, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't fully understand God's boundless love expressed in the cross. We're still learning about all the ways that our Savior lives up to his name. The God-given name, Jesus, assures you that God loves you beyond what you can comprehend. How does God show you his unfathomable love? The bloody cross. The cross is not a revelation of your value, as some false teachers say. It is a revelation of God's incomprehensible love for you. Did God express his boundless love for you in the cross because you were lovable and worthy, because you did something to deserve his love? No. Leon Morris rightfully said, quote, he loves because of what he is, not because of what we are, end quote. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm reading Sinclair Ferguson's book titled The Whole Christ. It is not an easy read, but I'm beginning to understand it. And, uh, and it's helping me to better understand God's love and to grasp that. And so I want to share a point with you that Ferguson makes in his book. You really need to stay with me here. I'll give you two different phrases, and I want you to think about which of the two phrases you agree with, okay? Number one, God loves you because Christ died for you. God loves you because Christ died for you. Second, number two here, because God loves you, Christ died for you. Because God loves you, Christ died for you. Now, which do you think is true? And, and it's a tough question because both statements sound right, but upon careful reflection, one statement seems to emerge to capture the truth of God's love better. Sinclair Ferguson argues that when people say God loves you because Christ died for you, they imply that the death of Christ is the reason for the love of God. Ferguson says, by contrast, the scriptures affirm that the love of God for us is the reason for the death of Christ. Ferguson argues the son does not need to do anything to persuade the father to love us. He already loves us. And Ferguson goes on to explain the danger of being confused about this. He says, quote, the subtle danger here should be obvious. If we speak of the cross of Christ as the cause 
of the love of the Father. We imply that behind the cross and apart from it, he may not actually love us at all. It is because he loves us that Christ died for us. He loved us from the first of time and therefore sent his son who came willingly to die for us. In this way, a right understanding of the work of Christ leads to a true understanding of the matchless love the Father has for us, end quote. I think what Ferguson was, was arguing is this, to truly understand the breadth, length, height, and and depth of God's love for us, we must understand that the cross is an expression of God's love for us. An expression of God's love for us, a love that he actually had for us before the world began. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You were an enemy of God in conflict with God. And because he loved you when you were his enemy, Christ died in your place to reconcile you to God so that you would be God's friend, God's child, indeed God's heir. I don't love Christina because I give her myself. I give myself to Christina because I love her. God gave you his son because he loves you. And the good news is this. Jesus lives up to his name. Dear church, you don't need to meet preconditions for God to love you. You don't need to be good enough for God to love you. You don't need to perform for God to love you. You were a horrific, evil, malevolent, malicious, rebellious, defiant sinner, and God loved you still, and the cross is his expression of love which ensures your salvation in life. This sovereign love becomes very real, becomes very precious once you receive Jesus Christ by faith. You, you cannot be confident about God's love for you until you receive Jesus Christ by faith. Only in union with Jesus can you experience God's love. Outside of Christ, you experience God's wrath. And dear struggling saints, think about for a moment your besetting sins. Think about your deepest sinful struggles, probably struggles that you've had for years. Have you ever sinned big and thought to yourself, I'm not sure I'm saved. How could a true Christian do that? How could God still love me after what I did? And when we think like that, we need the gospel. We need the gospel. You need to hear this, people of God. The cause of God's love for you is not you. It's not who you are or what you have done. The cause of God's love for you has always been and ever will be his loving heart. That's true, okay? When you sin big, will God stop loving you? Is God's love conditioned upon your obedience and perseverance? Or does God love you despite your disobedience and inclination to wander from him? 
Here's what you need to know when you're facing sinful desires that you cannot master and you cannot overcome. You need to know that God loved you when you were a sinner. And he saved you out of your sin and misery by the death of his son to continue to love you as you struggle through sin. Struggle to kill sin. He loves you along the way. And now that you are secure in his love, now that you are justified by the blood of his son, the father continues to love you by keeping you, protecting you, and preserving you by his grace and by his spirit. He has saved you, but he is also continuing to save you so that you will be saved in the end. Remember, your savior lives up to his name. The God-given name Jesus assures you that God's Son is your salvation. Jesus means Savior. Jesus is your Savior. Jesus is your salvation. Romans 5, 9 says, since, there, uh, since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Paul was addressing the church. Believers are justified by the blood of of God the Son. They have received the righteousness of God's Son and therefore are counted righteous under the law. And because believers possess the righteousness of God's Son, they will never suffer God's wrath. Believers are justified and therefore need never fear experiencing God's holy and unrelenting wrath. Jesus is your salvation. Jesus is your assurance. Shall we be saved? That's a future passive verb. Those who are now justified in Christ will be saved fully and finally from God's wrath. This is eternal security. His name is eternal security. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Paul said, much more shall we be saved by him. Hear the certainty of that salvation in his name. Hear your comfort and assurance in his name. One Lutheran scholar gave a very helpful comment on the verb to save here in verse 9. He said this, the verb to save always denotes rescue and deliverance from danger. And when it is used soteriologically, that means in reference to salvation, rescue from the worst of mortal dangers, that of sin, death, and hell. And then he added this helpful thought, but coupled with the act of rescue is the idea of keeping those rescued safe and secure, preserving them so that the danger shall not again involve them, end quote. Verses 9 and 10 are wonderful assurance for you. Wonderful. Those who are justified by the blood of Jesus, those who have been rescued by Jesus, are being kept safe and secure in God's love by Jesus are being ever preserved by Jesus from the devastating blow of God's divine punishment for sin. Jesus is your refuge. Jesus is your salvation. Jesus is your life now and forevermore. 
A justified child of God must never fear God's forthcoming wrath because of Jesus. People living in rebellion against God do not comprehend the extents of the coming judgment of God. They think little of it. They dismiss it because they don't comprehend the magnitude of it. They don't realize how terrifying a holy God truly is. But divine judgment is coming. And those who have received Christ by faith are justified in him, never need to fear the coming of God's wrath. Why? Jesus lives up to his name for them. Paul advances assurance in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? God loved us when we were his enemies, but he reconciled us to himself by the death of his son, thus making us his best friends, his beloved children, his heirs, And those the Father reconciles to himself by his Son are and will be saved by his life. Saved. It's another future passive verb. Being reconciled to God by the death of Jesus secures our future salvation and life. Our past, present, and future salvation are secure in his name. Verses 9 and 10 are God assuring us of our complete and final salvation. Beloved church, this here, this text is God assuring you of your security and your safety and your salvation in his son. Jesus' life, which I think includes his glorious resurrection, is our salvation, is our life, is the certainty of eternal life. He lives in us. We live in him an irreversible eternal union that is sealed by God. Isn't this Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The gospel's in his name. Dr. Ursinus said this, the Son of God is therefore called Jesus the Savior in respect to his office because he is our mediator and saves and delivers us from the evil both of guilt and punishment and that truly because he is an only and perfect Savior. Friends, track with me here. Think carefully about this. We cannot rightly call Jesus our Savior unless he gets all of his people all the way home. And his name assures you that he gets all of his people all the way home. The Brethren in Christ denomination has an official doctrinal statement on the assurance of the believer. And I want you to hear a portion of their statement. And I want you to evaluate it based on the assurance that Paul gives in Romans 5, 6 through 11. Here's their official position. While believers are eternally secure in Jesus the Christ... We can forfeit that security. God will not keep us against our will. 
From creation, God has given us free choice. We choose to respond in saving faith to God's offer of salvation, and our life in Christ continues by choice. By receiving Jesus, we do not surrender the right to make subsequent choices. If a child of God chooses to abandon or renounce faith, God respects that choice. Saints, does your life in Christ continue by your choice or by God's grace and spirit at work in you? I think it's fair to hear this statement and to ask this question, is Jesus an actual savior or a potential savior? Is Jesus struggling to save all these people, many slipping through his fingers, slipping you know, beyond his grasp? He just couldn't make it to them, just couldn't save them. Or is he saving those he was sent to save? Paul was absolutely certain that those who are justified in Christ by faith will be saved from the wrath of God by the life of Christ. In what sense is Jesus our savior if he cannot ensure that we are saved in the end? If he leaves our final salvation up to us, up to our choice, up to our ability and determination and grit to persevere in the faith to the end, then is it right to consider him a savior at all when we need to complete our salvation? Dear saints, if perseverance is up to you, if final salvation is up to you, if arriving at the end saved is up to you, you will not make it. You will not make it. Aren't you glad Jesus lives up to his name? Take heart and rejoice, dear church. Your Savior Jesus lives up to his God-given name. The God-given name Jesus assures you that God's Son is your life and joy. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31 is so relevant here. It says this, and because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our boast, dear saints, is that we have life in his name. Our life and our joy are in his name. Hallowed be your name. And, and Paul adds, he says in verse 10, that we shall be saved by his life. His life is our life. And Paul adds in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That phrase, rejoice in God, essentially means taking pride in God or boasting in God or glorying in God. One of my favorite hip-hop artists is S.O., and he raps this line, because we didn't save ourselves, it was God as our boast. Jesus was clear about this. He said, in John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Believe in his name, his name, and you will not die in your sins. You will live in him, with him, now and forever. His life will be your life as you abide in him and he in you. 
The Apostle John told us why he wrote his gospel. The gospel of John is great. And, and John just comes right out and says why he wrote it. He said in John 20, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. His name is the gospel. His name communicates that he came into the world to save sinners. And salvation in his name is not simply to keep you out of hell. Neither is salvation in his name this far distant future reality. Salvation in his name is for you right now. He is still saving you by grace. He is still saving you by the grace that he works in you to put sin to death to put the old you to death and to bring to life this new you that is in union with him. The apostle Peter explained this to us. Peter said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Have you given much thought to how Jesus' name applies to your ongoing struggle every day with sin in this life? Jesus is your Savior right now. He's continuing to save you by his grace and his spirit. He's continuing to give you the benefits of the gospel. He is a sufficient savior for you as you fight anxiety, fear, anger, impatience, lust, covetousness, sexual immorality, laziness, bitterness, self-centeredness, and every desire that is contrary to God's law. Do you believe Jesus might save you? or that Jesus is saving you and will save you. Perhaps we ought to remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. But, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Dear church, you are being saved by Jesus. And the word of the cross is power for you in your ongoing struggle with sin. You need Jesus to live up to his name for you as you battle besetting sins. So take heart in this gospel truth. Jesus lives up to his name. I'd like to end with a portion of a profound prayer taken from the Valley of Vision a collection of Puritan prayers. The book that I got was from a mentor, Bob Hopper, and it speaks deep comfort to your soul and beautifully expresses a portion of the greatness of your Savior's name. Thine honor is secured and displayed even in my escape from thy threats. And that by means of Jesus, in whom mercy and truth meet together and righteousness and peace kiss each other. In him, the enslaved find redemption, the guilty pardon, the unholy renovation. 
In him are everlasting strength for the weak, unsearchable riches for the needy, treasures of wisdom and knowledge for the ignorant, fullness for the empty. At thy gracious call I hear, take, come, apply, receive his grace. Not only submit to his mercy, but acquiesce in it. Not only glory in the cross, but in him crucified and slain. Not only in joy and forgiveness, but in the one through whom atonement comes. Thy blessings are as secure as they are glorious. Thou hast provided for my safety and my prosperity and hast promised that I shall stand firm and grow stronger. O Lord God, Without the pardon of my sin, I cannot rest satisfied. Without the renovation of my nature by grace, I can never rest easy. Without the hopes of heaven, I can never be at peace. All this I have in thy son Jesus. Blessed be his name.